Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, this week uh, we're back after a bit of an absence. Thank you all so much for your patience. I uh, had some things to do and uh, was out of town for a couple weeks. And so here we are back again doing a tribute episode for another actor who has died recently. The late and great Christopher Plummer. My goodness, this man, very recognizable, has had a long and illustrious career in Hollywood. Canadian actor, born in, I believe, born in Toronto, grew up in Quebec, and uh, just started off right out at the gate. I, I read that he got interested in acting in high school and went on from there, studied, never went to university, which was something that he regretted the rest of his life, apparently. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if you can have too many regrets about this life. He's well known for The Sound of Music, playing um, Captain Von Trapp in that one. Mm-hmm which ironically uh, is a role that he didn't care for too much. Uh, He just felt it was very one note and uh, he didn't really like it. He didn't feel he had much to contribute to it. I think he never even referred to that movie by its full name whenever he talked about it. He just thought it was sappy and and, uh, sentimental stuff, although he enjoyed working with Julie Andrews. And I think later on in life, he kind of came around and recognized it for what it was and said that he was honored to be involved in in that movie, which when it was released, I think it booted Gone with the wind out as the most successful film of all time at that time yeah and i think it it held that position for quite a while so yeah i mean undoubtedly made him even more famous than he already was but he had already had a long career uh, in in television started out in television and like moved straight into movies and uh, was one of those actors who could kind of go between stage and film and television quite successfully 217 credits to his name on IMDb as an actor. And I think the last film that he did was Knives Out, if I'm not mistaken, which was great. One of at least. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and I liked him in it. I uh, I read that he started on stage and the um, move to screen was actually kind of a struggle for him. There is, I haven't, I, I've done next to no on-camera work. All Anything I've done has been on stage, but I know that there is a distinct difference between performing on stage and performing for a camera. I mean, it, they're two totally different things, and I guess apparently a little early in his career, he kind of struggled with that, but obviously, eventually, it's something that he overcame, and he was well-recognized, all kinds of awards, Tonys, Emmys, uh, just recognition Academy across Awards, the board. Yeah. yeah. A very well established and respected actor. I mean, in in my view, very much a man's man, you know. Yeah. Tall, good looking, stern, you know, commanding presence that carried throughout all of the roles that I've seen him in, uh, which is quite a few because he worked a lot. Yeah, like every year he's has two or three, you know, projects coming out it seems like. Uh, it's crazy. Up to the very end, really. Yeah, a very illustrious career. So, you know, it, it's it's sad that he's gone, but uh, he had a very full life. So and we can just kind of celebrate his work. Well, I have to recommend, before we dive into this week's movie, which is Dreamscape, which came out in 1984, I have to recommend that if you have not seen Murder by Decree... 
God, this is a fantastic movie. And we've done a couple of Bob Clark's movies on here. And I think I've even referenced Murder by Decree once or twice just because I love that film so much. Directed by Bob Clark and starring Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes. If you're into Sherlock Holmes and who isn't, you've got to give that movie a look. It is fantastic. It's just one of the best Sherlock Holmes movies out there. And fun fact, he is, I think, the second cousin to British actor Nigel Bruce. Which, if you're into Sherlock Holmes like I am, you know Nigel Bruce played uh, Watson in the long-running radio series, which (laughs) I sound so nerdy when I say this, but I have, like, hundreds of these episodes on MP3, and I listen to them. I used to fall asleep to them, listening to them uh, going to bed. It's just nothing like those old Sherlock Holmes radio shows. And Nigel Bruce was a great Watson in those. But anyway, (laughs) coming back to Christopher Plummer and this week's episode, Dreamscape from 1984, also starring a very young and fresh Dennis Quaid, which was a a joy to see on the screen, being such a cocky, jerky sort of, but also lovable guy in the title role. Uh, For me, this movie does bring back memories because this was a film that I remember very distinctly from childhood. Yeah, We must have either taped it off a TV or or taped it off of a rental tape or something because my sisters and I watched this quite a bit. And I was really anxious to see if it lived up to my memories because I hadn't seen it since my childhood. It's yeah. surprisingly not a well-remembered movie, I think. People don't talk much about it. And going into this, I was a little concerned like how dated it would be or maybe my memories didn't really hold up as well. It's an interesting film. I would say it spans a number of genres, horror being one of them. Yeah, It's like a sci-fi movie. It's a horror movie. It's like a political thriller. There's some romance in there. I mean, it's got a little bit of everything. It's almost like um, trying to be a little bit more of like a sci-fi Indiana Jones thing, you know, where the adventures Kinda. happen in the dreams. And I don't know. that. I thought about that because his character struck me as a young Harrison Ford-ish type thing. And this movie came out in 1984, uh, the same year I believe Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out. And both films also co-star the absolutely... Kate Capshaw. Oh, God, gorgeous <laughs> Kate Capshaw, right? I know, right? Man. I think all of us were in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> when we were kids. I mean, from... I don't think that this had the widespread appeal of Temple of Doom, but hardcore Indiana Jones fans kind of view Temple of Doom as one of the redheaded stepchildren of the franchise. Like, I think that it was the bastard child before that stupid alien one came out. (laughs) Oh, God. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But Temple of Doom was always my favorite. I just thought that it was so fun and exciting and funny. And she was just absolutely great in that movie. I loved her in that movie. She was also in Space Camp, which is another great movie. (laughs) She was married to Steven Spielberg there for a while. She was. Is is she's not anymore? Uh, Maybe she is. I don't know. I I don't remember. But um, she was very beautiful, of course. But she also just had a really... Spunky, and I'm sure she still does, a very spunky personality <laughs> that made her really fun to watch on screen. And she has a relatively small part in this movie, but I still enjoyed seeing her. And, and you're right, you know, this is young Dennis Quaid, and somehow 
Dennis Quaid was involved in this movie kind of from its inception, and they wrote this role with him in mind, and, mm-hmm. and he was really the only choice to play it because he was so enthusiastic about it and bringing it to fruition. And I like Dennis Quaid. I still like Dennis Quaid. He's handsome. He's funny. He seems very down to earth. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, he is very young, very handsome. You're right. He's got kind of that cocky attitude about him. It's it's charming. It's endearing. Yeah. Um, and, and this really, I mean, he's a baby in this. The other thing that I remember him from, especially from when I was a kid, was Inner Space with him and yes. Ryan. Oh, my God. Uh, and I loved that movie. And this is even before that. <laughs> yeah. It is. So he's just, he's a little, he's a little baby, but uh, very handsome and charming and, and good in this role. I would love the excuse to do Inner Space on this show. We can't really call it a horror movie, but man, that's another movie. <laughs> no. You've got to go out and see that. You know, it still holds up. I was actually guested on another podcast that was done by some friends of mine years ago, and we did Inner Space there, and I remember us just loving that movie. It was oh, yeah. so good even today. So um, this movie, I think this movie's kind of ripe for a remake. I, I feel like yeah. it- it's dated, and it's not terrible. It's just dated. I, maybe that's just the best way to put it. And I feel like you could take this whole concept, um, change almost nothing about it, and just update it for modern times. And uh, it, it would be great. I, I think somebody needs to do this. It's really interesting. If you look at the poster for this movie, it is like a ripoff of the Indiana Jones posters. Yes. They're really trying to make this look like this Indiana Jones type globe trotting thing with the poster art. It looks just like the Temple of Doom and the Raiders. Exactly. Poster art. I mean, obviously that's intentional. And then I have some really cool Italian poster art that I'm going to put up on when I when we post this on the website. That's hilarious. Oh, I know that Italian stuff is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, so some of it doesn't even make any sense. Like, did they even see this movie? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but and somehow that's kind of in the spirit of this movie because again, the movie is a little bit all over the place in what it tries to be in the genre that it is. It's it has a surreal elements to it it has very down-to-earth elements to it. it has some corny elements to it some touching parts somehow it still kind of works i mean don't get me wrong i mean the movie's dated and it i you know it had its issues but the only real issue i had with the movie was the film score i felt like the music it didn't deserve this music i don't know maybe you feel differently well kind of just because i know having looked into it, that it was very intentional. Now, I don't remember who the composer Maurice? was. No, first, you got it. The composer is Maurice Jarre, who is... Uh, very, I mean, very famous, Oh, right? yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, you know. Oh, right? Like these huge classic films. Ghost, Dead Poets Society... Gorillas in the Mist. I mean, you, <laughs> all of the, I mean, yeah. massive, massive films and, and really beautiful scores that this guy can write. Just not in this movie. Well, they wanted him to do an orchestral score like he normally did, and he specifically did not want to. He wanted to do a synth score because he felt like a synth score would highlight the dreamlike nature of everything that's going on both in the dreams and in the real world because even in the real world it's all very mad cap like there this this movie is action packed it's not terribly long but as i always 
say, you know, I take notes and I have like two pages of plot notes. Like it's always moving, things happening yeah. all the time. Heavily plotted. It's very plot driven. The sci fi fantasy stuff with the dream stuff, which we'll get into, which is important. But even outside of that, it really is very much a political thriller. And so yeah. there's lots of chases and investigation and tension and, and, and it's good. It, it all works together though. The score of does of course seem very dated. It's very eighties. I feel like I get what he was going for, especially in some scenes, like the first time that we enter into dreams with our main character, Alex Dennis Quaid, the synthetic score makes it feel very surreal and dreamlike. And of course, they do stuff with the cinematography that also today looks very dated. It takes you out of reality. It doesn't look real. There's something off about it. There's something off about the way it looks, and there's something off about the way it sounds. And I thought it was effective. And... I get what you're saying. I understand the criticism, especially from a modern perspective. I think if you take a young audience and put them in front of this, they're going to roll their eyes. And, oh, my God, that's so 80s. And, yeah, well, it is. But I, I don't <laughs> it know. was on point for that time. You know, it was it was innovative at the time. Yeah, I mean, I understand the reason he made that choice. And I can imagine that, you know, I would maybe make that same choice if I were him. But I kind of disagree on this. I feel like it... Look, I love synth scores, and I don't mind that dated quality. Heck, you know, we talk about this all the time about how sometimes that's, you know, that takes us back, and we like that. But I feel like it was a miscalculation in this movie because I felt like the synth score seemed thin. And I felt like it cheapened the movie a bit. The film that's trying to be this sort of, uh, not globetrotting, but like you said, this like political thriller that's always moving and there's tons of action and there's intrigue and this stuff, it deserved something a little more orchestral and suspenseful. And somehow I just don't feel like the synthesized score that he came up with rises to that occasion it just bothered me it bothered me while watching it and i mean i get it and it's fine and, and it works in the dream sequences i think but then in the rest of the movie with the chase scenes and, the, and that stuff yeah. uh, uh, i don't know it just wasn't what i normally expect in a film like this and and not that it always has to follow these rules but in this case it just took me out of it a little bit and i was disappointed fair enough anyway I mean, I feel like we we can't go through every plot point. The 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 podcast would be two hours long, so mm. we're gonna have to kind of <laughs> do the Cliff's Notes version. But I feel like we should at least get into it. Yeah. The first thing we see turns out to be a dream sequence. It's this woman running away from what looks like devastation, and it's all very like color saturated and in reds. It. it looks dreamlike but of course this is the very first thing we're seeing so we're not sure exactly what's going on Mm -hmm. and this woman's running down the road and then behind her seemingly a nuclear explosion happens um, and she ends up getting annihilated or whatever and this guy wakes up this was his dream (laughs) it turns out that this guy is the president of the United States (laughs) played by Eddie Albert yeah (laughs) from Green Acres (laughs) yeah right I mean 
mean, I know he's been in a lot of other stuff, but I just think of him, oh, that's the Green Acres guy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize that's what he was from, but as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. And so he's being troubled by these dreams. Then we find out that there are these people who are doing dream studies, and it's uh, Kate Capshaw, who plays a lady named Jane DeVries, and Dr. Paul Novotny, played by Max von Sydow. And Max von Sydow, of course, is huge, you mm. know, around the world and in Hollywood. And he and Christopher Plummer, their paths crossed many times. Yeah. Uh, they, they worked together several times. They were up for the same roles. And it makes sense. They have a similar demeanor. They do, um, yeah. So it makes sense. Anyway, they're working on this dream project. Novotny talks about how he wants to get this kid that he worked with before that had ghosted him named Alex, who was like played by Dennis Quaid, who was the most successful or, or talented um, psychic that he had ever worked with. But right in the middle of their work together, Alex had, had just split like he had just disappeared. And then we meet Alex and he's a scamp. Like <laughs> he's a lovable scamp. I love he it. He uses his psychic abilities to place winning bets at the racetrack. Which, yeah, why the hell not? <laughs> he's doing exactly what I would do if I were psychic. Exactly. Like, like <laughs> finally, we see something true to life in one of these movies with psychics, right? <laughs> but it's a little unclear, right? Like the extent of his abilities, because although he's able right. to like predict the winning of the racetrack, it's not like he reads minds so much in this movie. Right. But he also apparently can move things with his mind, or at least when he was being researched, was, was able to do some of that. We see in some footage later on or earlier on when they're kind of talking about this guy. Right. Yeah. And later we see that classic like psychic test where there's two people <laughs> sitting on opposite sides sides of the table and one person is drawing up cards and then you know he can get it's a red triangle it's a green circle and he gets it right you know every yeah. single time who knows if that's really a thing but and, and he reads it was in mind. ghostbusters so yeah it, it was in be. ghostbusters so it must be true <laughs> <laughs> well that was that's right when he they bring him back because he's being chased uh and at first he's being chased uh, at the at this racetrack by some guys who, who basically want to use him Right. They want. Yeah, they're on to him. Mm -hmm, they're on to him. And then they want to cut and all that. And he he's pretty good at escaping and getting the slip on them. But then he gets taken at his home. A, a, a couple of heavies show up at his door. Yeah. <laughs> heavies from the university. <laughs> from the university. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious that, that this university professor is sending out these Right. He's very compliant with them at first because the the other guys, the racetrack guys are after him. So basically these heavies are getting him away from the other heavies and so mm -hmm. he goes with them, but if, when he's kind of in the clear away from the guys who are chasing him, he's like, "Oh, okay, guys." Hey, uh Listen, guys, I've thought this over, and I'm not really interested. Why don't you just uh, let me off at La Siena, okay? I know this is going to sound a bit sinister, Mr. Gardner, but uh, we have instructions to bring you back with us. You mean I'm being kidnapped? Well, there are some people up at Thornhill that are anxious to meet with you. Yeah, well, what would you do if I just opened the door and jumped, huh? <laughs> and both of these guys who play these crony-type guys both familiar i've seen them both in 
things as this type of character several mm-hmm. times. But anyway, they end up taking him to the university, and you know, it's a little suspenseful, because he's not really going of his free will, you don't really know what's going on. But when he gets there, you know, it's Novotny, and they know each other. They have a relationship. You know, he's not, doesn't appear that he's in terrible danger or anything, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He just wants to go back to his life and do his own thing, and Novotny basically blackmails him and says, listen, I know what you're doing, you know, with all these racetrack winnings and stuff. It would really suck if the IRS were to get wind of that. So Alex gets pulled into this. And what they're doing, and I love this premise. I I Mm. think it's a great premise. It's awesome. They are doing therapy by psychically linking people and allowing these psychics to enter the unconscious dream state of patients. And in doing that, they're supposed to be able to help them overcome their fears, deal with whatever issues that they are working with or whatever. It's interesting because this movie came out, I think, the same year or just one year before A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And they're very similar, that idea of going into other people's dreams. In fact, somebody involved in this movie, was it the writer? I think it was... Chuck the... Russell, one of the writers of the screenplays. Yeah, of the... yeah, he wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yep. So they're major, major connections, which is kind of interesting that Nightmare on Elm Street went on to become such a huge franchise, and this one is seemingly forgotten, because yeah. I think this movie, compared to the original Nightmare on Elm Street, in terms of quality, very similar and, yeah, you know, they're both very competent. Brain Scan, I think, came out the year before this. So there was a little slew here of, of jumping into people's dreams movies. Now, I'm curious. When I was a kid, my impression of this whole thing was that it's this machinery, this technology that they're using that allows people to enter dreams. And the fact that he's psychic just makes it easier for him. Like like somehow he's more easily able to like adapt to the process or, you know, because it does require some mental capacity as well that has to be sort of trained. And uh, some people are better at it than others, and they figure that these psychics or whatever are better at it, right? Or is it really, are the machines that they're hooked up to kind of just monitoring their vital signs? What's Do you know, is there a difference? I'm with you in that growing up, I thought that the machine, because it looks like their heads are connected, yeah. you know, like yeah. by wires. They're both, both subjects are sitting in these like, reclined chairs something comfortable that they could sleep in obviously and then there's a big machine between them and they're both they both got like some kind of like skull cap on and then also things that are monitoring them i thought the machinery had something to do with it as well like you i haven't seen this in at least a couple decades but watching it again this time i wasn't really sure what the Mm. machinery was for (laughs) other than monitoring them because you find out later in the movie that these psychics and we only see psychics do this if anybody can do it we don't see anybody else do it right we only see psychics do it we find out later in the movie that they can do it without the machinery. That's so right. So I don't know if the machinery just, you know, aids in monitoring them or sedating them or, or what. I mean, they, they are keeping, they're monitoring them closely. They've got cameras on their eyes so that they can see when they go into REM sleep. They're monitoring their heart rates and all that kind of stuff, which is important because in the dreams, if something is going on that's threatening, you know, which they can tell by advanced heart rate and stuff, then they wake them up. 
Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think really <laughs> the machines are there to look cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he makes a funny comment earlier when he first sees it. Nice place you got here. Who's your decorator? Darth Vader? That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. It is pretty funny. So he gets he gets blackmailed into doing it. Then we see him. You know, they do a little bit of training or whatever, but they basically just throw him right in. Yeah. We also see before this, before he even knows what's going in, he walks in on them doing this with somebody else, a little boy and another male psychic who we don't know. We're never introduced to. Um, but something goes wrong, and we see that the male psychic is catatonic in the wake of it like they take him away strapped into a chair in a van and we never see him again something went terribly wrong so we know that the stakes are potentially high Mm. but alex wants to get right in there let's do it so they throw him in with this guy who's a construction worker in his dream they're at the top of this construction site it's all shot you know i don't you would be better able to describe the cinematography style than I but it is very dreamlike and you know as it turns out there's like an accident on the site and it's just the two men in the dream but the guy who's dreaming like falls over the edge and is hanging off a beam and Alex has to like jump onto the beam to try to save him and the score is very intense and eventually Alex falls and he he wakes up right before he hits the ground which is significant because later we find out that that old theory that if you die in your dream you die in real life again another connection to like Nightmare on Elm Street but we get (laughs) I just thought that this was a really good scene to establish for us what's going on yeah like (laughs) you're in the dream you're an active participant in the dream um and you can things help each can other out. happen you can help each other out but you also can be harmed exactly and the way you know the way these were shot i think it, it kind of goes in this movie's favor unintentionally or maybe intentionally is that what we get is a lot of special effects work that much of it looks dated now it does it's it's like rear projection screen or blue screen kind of stuff but also intentionally fantastic backgrounds and and things as well and i'm willing to give it all a bit of a pass because these are supposed to be dreams so i feel like even the filmmakers themselves were not that concerned with this looking hyper realistic because they were looking for a surreal quality to the dreams you know oh yeah absolutely this one is the least surreal of them all yeah the colors are kind of oddly changed and stuff and like you can tell that somehow you know the sky above them the clouds are moving faster yeah right right unnaturally fast so it is very dreamlike but of all of them this is the most realistic later they become abstract and surreal nightmares basically i mean they're all nightmares and and it's funny i actually saw an interview with dennis quaid where he was talking about shooting this and they were up on the top of the tallest building in la at the time it was like 50 stories Uh. and he says he distinctly remembers shooting it because they were they were up there pretty high and he said they basically just had nets underneath of them Uh just to keep them from falling too far and he said i'm not sure that would fly today yeah (laughs) (laughs) my god Can you imagine? (laughs) No, I can't. And it's funny because the way that it looks on screen, that seems totally unnecessary. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they didn't take really full advantage of that, did they? (laughs) But anyway, Alex is excited. 
because it worked and he can do it and he gets how it goes now. Oh, and that other guy, uh, then he meets another guy, right? Who comes into right, his Tommy. Room. Tommy. And Tommy is the villain. Tommy establishes himself as the villain right from the beginning. And he's played by a guy named David Patrick Kelly, who was in some other things. He was in The Warriors, and he was in... And and he always, from what I read, because I recognize him, but mostly from this movie, he just has a very weaselly look about him. Yeah. And to his credit, he plays that weaselly guy very well yeah um you know he seems like somebody you would know and you'd be like "Ugh, that guy (laughs) (laughs) with the beady eyes and the sharp pointed nose and all Uh that like poor guy but this is the really interesting thing about this movie this is where i think if i were to update this you know i would change it is that there's never really any question who the bad people are and the sinister things that are going on, you know? Yeah. The movie doesn't really hold its cards close to its chest. Mm-mm. It really just kind of lays all this out for you openly and in the beginning and just, uh, you know, your job is just to kind of follow the ride and see where it leads. Because right. after he meets him in his room and picks up his saxophone and annoyingly honks on it and does all, you know, kind of like basically he's jealous of Alex's first time quick success in this. Well, because, you know, Alex is the new bright shining star, whereas mm-hmm. before Tommy had been the yeah. superstar. Yeah. And so he's all about telling Alex, you know, it's cute that you're good at this or whatever, but I'm the top dog and don't forget it. Stay you in know, your like, lane. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, he's marking his territory. Like, this is my deal. And he does it in a very smarmy way. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to get all analytical about it, I guess if I were in Tommy's position, I'd be kind of pissed too. You know, I've been working on this for a while. I've been the superstar. And now here comes in this new hotshot who everybody's all excited about. I'd be irritated too. But like, he, he, he obviously is on kind of a power trip Um, and it just establishes his character frankly he plays a very small role too but they introduce him here early so that we know that he's there and that he's a threat. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting how his character comes in early and, and so sinister in the very beginning and then seems to just disappear for a while until until about three quarters of the way through or two thirds of the way through when the previous stuff is, is getting resolved. And now we have this other danger that's got to happen. You know, it's a very much I mean, this movie is very much three act structured. I think it's very clear. It is. I think it's shortly after this meeting that then we meet Bob Blair, who we'd seen a little bit earlier, but and then he just goes right up to Alex and is like, hey, congratulations. By the way, this is a government project. My congratulations to you. They told me about your successful dream link. Well done. Thanks. This is only the beginning, you know. We all feel that the possibilities for our program are tremendously exciting. But we've got to see that you don't jeopardize the wonderful work you've already done. I don't follow you, Bob. Well, you have been playing it a little fast and loose since you got here. Those unauthorized visits to the Dream Chamber, for instance, that's a bit sneaky. (laughs) I loved this scene only because even though Alex has already done this dream jump once they're still doing testing on him and they're doing like a cat scan or an mri or something Mm -hmm. um so he's just coming out of the machine and he's strapped down and bob blair played by christopher Plummer, he's high level government and that's kind of like we don't really know know. (laughs) yeah we mm, you don't need the specifics he's just really 
really important in the government. Right. <laughs> uh, has, has a lot of pull, has a lot of sway. And he comes in and he's talking to Alex and Alex is strapped down to the table and, and Alex says, you know, can, can you unstrap me? Can you let me up? And Bob's like, no. <laughs> I'm just going to have this conversation with you with you strapped down to the slab. Exactly. I just felt like it really it's such an easy way of establishing the dynamic. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in charge here. And he's super sinister about it too, you know, just the same kind of deal. Like, okay, government project got it. And the movie stretches this out, but I feel like we don't need to. Uh, no. Bob is is a, a confidant of the president. They seem to be on very friendly terms. Uh-huh. And the president has told Bob Blair that he's having these dream problems. And Blair is like, well, you know, I know about this project. Maybe I can help you. But in that same conversation, the president tells him what his dreams are about, about all this because the president has several dreams throughout the movie, and they're all the same. They're all the aftermath of this terrible nuclear fallout. He feels that that's something that could happen, and if it does, he's responsible for it. So he confides in Blair that he's going to meet with the leaders of, I don't remember if it was the Soviet Union or Russia at, yeah. at the time, but whichever. He was going to meet with them and try to come to some sort of peace accord where they would do a complete disarmament. But Blair doesn't like that. Yeah. And so it's obvious from the beginning basically what Blair is setting up. You know, he's going to somehow get the president into this dream study. It's not necessarily evident exactly what he's going to do, but he's going to use this dream thing to try to prevent the president from doing this... uh, Peace uh, nuclear disarmament treaty, yeah. There's no sense in drawing it out. As it turns out, he is planning on assassinating the president in his sleep because he thinks that he can get away with it. You know, nobody would believe it. They can cover it up. They can just make it look like he died naturally in his sleep. He's just very sinister from the beginning. Like like you said, the movie lays its cards out. You know, it's, it's not trying to keep anything from you really even though it is suspenseful because it moves at such a quick pace right and ultimately this this uh, is another aspect of it like i said i would change because uh, oh it goes all the way to the top you know <laughs> it's like yeah the, stakes... <laughs> the president doesn't even have a name it's just <laughs> mr president that's right <laughs> like the stakes are hilariously high you know for this little study that's kind of being conducted i mean groundbreaking don't get me wrong sure you know study but that has all these potential implications and could be weaponized in so many different ways and blah 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 blah. but first we're going to use it to assassinate the president you know <laughs> right and of course you know very unreal realistically but as it always happens in these types of movies the people who are working on the project it's like they never considered Mm. that it could be used for these nefarious purposes like (laughs) when they find out that it might be used for these nefarious purposes they're shocked and appalled like oh my god what have we done like (laughs) come on shut it down (laughs) (laughs) you idiot (laughs) but but this leads up to again another the dream sequences are for me the most exciting the action stuff is exciting too don't get me wrong there are great like car slash horse slash motorcycle slash like airplane (laughs) chases like all that's great i very much enjoyed it but the the stuff that was 
my cup of tea was the dream stuff. And I had mentioned earlier that psychic who had gone into a dream and something had gone terribly wrong and he had ended up catatonic and gotten sent away. Well, the person whose dream he had gone into had been this little boy named Buddy, of course. This little boy is suffering from these terrible, terrible, debilitating nightmares that are causing, you know, his physical health is deteriorating because of them. Alex takes a liking to him, in part because Jane, Kate Capshaw, is working with the little boy, and he's also trying to get closer to Jane. (laughs) There's a romance (laughs) side plot, too. There's one part of that that I want to talk about when we get to it, but really, it's just the... 80s romance subplot which is fine they're yeah. both sexy people He's it's trying to fun get to watch pants. them flirt with each other right whatever <laughs> alex gets kind of attached to this little boy and he wants to help him so he tells novotny i want to go in to this kid's dream and novotny's like absolutely not i already lost one guy to this you're too valuable i can't risk it and alex says well we do it or i'm out you know novotny is hesitant but Alex well, is resolute. It's hilarious that Novotny conveniently forgets that he's still blackmailing him. The uh, like, right. I mean, <laughs> he can just go True. back. Well, you can't get out because the IRS. So no, you're not going to do it. And <laughs> that's the end of that. <laughs> I hadn't even really thought about that. I imagine the truth of the matter is Novotny probably is very curious and interested to see what Alex can do. Yeah, I do think that he's trying to protect his investment, but ultimately he wants to see if it can work out. And so they do. I mean, this all happens so fast. Like, it's it's Alex in Novotny's office saying, look, I'm doing it or I'm out. And Novotny's like, no, you can't. Okay, fine. Then, boom, we're in the lab. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and this was actually my favorite dream sequence. I'd forgotten it's about really it. It's really good. It's, it's special effects heavy, and it's great. There's stop motion animation in there. There are these elaborate sets. Um, everything is kind of off kilter. The boy is just in, surreal. Yeah. yeah, it's just kind of like in a haunted house, and, and they basically end up getting chased by this what the snake man. He's been drawing pictures of it and all kinds of stuff. But there's this you know villain in his dreams basically that is this giant snake man. Yeah, it's just like a giant mm-hmm. snake creature chases them through the house, and they go down this crazy staircase, and they end up in the basement. Um, and then Alex fights with it in the dream. And there's a nice mix of great makeup effects and stop motion and these sets and everything. It's just it's just a lot of fun. And on the Blu-ray release of this, there are behind-the-scenes interviews. And they talk to um, some of the special effects people who worked on this. And, and like you said, it is a mix. There is a guy in a suit, but a lot of it is also done with stop motion like claymation. And it does look dated but anybody who's ever listened to this show before knows that i'm a huge fan of of practical effects it's just it's artistry it's craftsmanship and that's not to say that cgi isn't i know that there are artists behind those keyboards putting that cgi together i get it but it's just different to Mm -hmm. me and i just so much appreciate this that's why when you said it's rife for a remake i agree with you because i think there's so much potential but i feel like 
they're gonna fuck it up with the I'm yeah sorry, <laughs> with it, CGI. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just gonna all be CGI. It's all gonna be effects driven. I feel like that they will neglect a lot of the story in favor of spectacle, which is okay. That's fine. There's certainly an audience for that. In fact, it'll probably draw you, give, bring you more money in mm. if that's what you focus on. I just, uh, I, I do worry. And I, I would be totally down. If they made a remake, I would watch it, hands down. But I just feel like something would be lost. But the, the, the whole Snake Man thing is very scary. But the cool part about it is, to me, is that Alex can't defeat the Snake Man on his own. In fact, he gets wounded um, in the dream uh, and and he's tussling one on one with this giant. I don't know. It's got to be nine, ten feet tall at least. Snake guy. Buddy has to be the one to defeat it, and he is. And he chops its head off, and its head goes falling down into some like enormous fantastical spiral staircase or something. Looks great. And they both wake up, and Buddy is ecstatic. You know, we did it. We beat it. You know, now that he's beaten it in his dreams, I guess it's not going to be a threat anymore. I don't think we ever see Buddy again. But I felt like it was an important part of the movie to show what is possible there. But also, that snake man freaked Alex the crap out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and, uh, there's a scene where he's, I don't know, in the cafeteria, the library, something on this campus, and he's, he's sketching it, and Tommy comes up behind him and sees it he's like oh i guess that really freaked you out huh and he's like yeah even in the moment you're thinking okay clearly this is gonna be significant (laughs) later tommy knows what alex is afraid of yeah it's great it is it see it's also very indiana jones right snakes why did it have to be snakes (laughs) yeah So many parallels. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> There's more coming That's too. It's funny. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> well, Alex is trying to get Jane to go out a bunch, and there's a bunch of that crap. And then he goes to a bar. There's a bar that they've been in a couple times. There's a guy there named Charlie, played by George Went, you know, from Cheers. Norm. Yeah. And this bit I thought was just totally unnecessary because we know sinister stuff is going on. We don't need this character here to just hammer that point home. Point it out. Right. Yeah, but here he is. It's, he's a horror writer. He's clearly modeled after Stephen King or something, you know. Yeah. Just, and yeah. he says, hey, I know you're involved in this project, and I've got to tell you, like, there are ulterior motives here. I'm investigating this as material for my next book or something like that. Right. And then there's shady guys there who kind of chase him out, and... and it's like okay this this part was dumb yeah it, it's funny because in the movie it didn't bother me like there's even some exciting parts where they start getting followed by these thugs and they end up in this big crowd of students at like a pep rally or something and George Wentz's character ends up getting killed right you know in this big crowd but there's so much commotion going on that nobody even notices like it didn't bother me in the moment but as we're sitting here talking about the movie I'm looking at George Wentz's picture on IMDb and the cast list, and I'm like, oh, God, how do we work that in? Like, it's so unnecessary. <laughs> like, he's just there uh-huh. to alert Alex to the fact that there is something shady going on. That's it. That's his only purpose. Exactly. And it's unnecessary because he could have figured it out on his own or it could have been revealed in some other way. In some other way. But it's got to be, like, this super famous writer who gets murdered. Like, I mean, again, like, it's like, I guess this movie is like, go big or go home, right? It's not just anybody investigating this. It's like 
like the Stephen King of the movie world, who then is going to get shot, which would surely cause big issues. Yeah, I, anyway. everything happens so quickly after that that I don't even know that there would be time for it to be a big issue. That's true. He tells him he's after the president or something, and Alex like, what? And then the thugs show up, and they shoot the author guy, and... <laughs> immediately they catch Alex, throw him in a car with Blair, who says, yeah, we're doing this. You can either get on board or we're going to kill you. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just, just lays it out. Alex, it's very simple. Either you work for me or you die. But he gets away, and that's when there's a great big fun chase scene, like back at the racetrack where he had been before, and he's on a motorcycle, and they're oh, on the horse track, and the they're place. chasing him in cars. And It's fun. It is fun. I liked it. It's stupid, but it's fun. So at that point, he knows what's going on, and, and then it's time to, you know, foil Blair's plan. We skipped one thing that I want to talk about. Mm, yeah, I know. <laughs> in his pursuit of Jane, which is totally fine and cute. She basically says to him, look, I'm into you too, but I also know that you're a huge womanizer, which he is. We've seen it. And she's like, you know, we're working together. I I'm not just going to be another one of your conquests or whatever. And and she basically shuts him down, despite the fact that she says, I get it. I'm into you too. Yeah. So they they separate and then... He comes to her office and she's asleep on her couch and he sits down in the chair next to her and closes his eyes. It's obvious what he's doing. He's trying to get into her dream and he does. And this scene, at least parts of it, were censored from some releases because there's a sex scene, a, a very mild with yeah. absolutely no nudity sex scene. Yeah. But after the theatrical release, I think on the initial video release, it was censored. And then even on some subsequent subsequent uh, releases, it's been censored. We saw it. It's very tame. It's totally within the realm of PG-13. <sighs> Coming at it from a 2021 perspective, I was like, okay, you know, like, this is fun. It's a fun, it's cool that he can get into the dreams without needing the machinery. This is the first time that we learned that. And in the wake of what happens, he reminds her of that. And they're both in awe of it as well. In my notes, I wrote, <laughs> and he enters her dream without her knowledge or her consent. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. It's not okay. Yeah. He is consciously aware of what's going on, and she's not. She just thinks she's dreaming. And, and they bone, and then she wakes up, and she's like, how dare you? But And then she's like, oh, whatever. Like, oh, <laughs> exactly. It's a little rapey. <laughs> well, it is. And it's funny how they do address it a little bit. Like, she is pretty pissed off about it. But then, like, you're like, it's, yeah, okay, well, you know, whatever. It, definitely nowadays, this is, uh, actually, again, you remake this movie, that would be a really interesting aspect of this whole oh, no, concept. They would never... I mean, you could explore it, right? I mean, it's... I guess. Yeah, for sure. It would be a much bigger issue than apparently it was in 1984. Oh, yeah. It would be treated totally differently. It was a different time. We were rapier. I know, then. and it didn't. I know. <laughs> and isn't that so bizarre? Like it, it didn't. It never even crossed my mind in 1984. 
no. whatever. Well, not as a kid either. Well, true. and But even then, I think had I been an adult, I would thought, well, it's just a dream. You know, it's, yeah, not like, it's not like there were any fluids exchanged or anything. No harm, no foul. But <laughs> yeah. today I'm like, ooh, that's pushing it a little bit. There's one other thing. There was apparently another sex scene between them at some point in the movie. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It was taken out, and it's sort of the lost sex scene because supposedly it contained nudity. Ah. Supposedly it was it was not taken out in Europe, but it was taken out in the U.S., and it was in one release, wasn't in another release. No, The sex scene supposedly was shot, but nobody's ever found it. Like, it's, it hasn't really shown up anywhere nowadays where it's concrete, any photos of it or anything like that. So it's hmm. it's a little bit of a mystery around the movie of Cape Capshaw's, you know, boobies were in this at some point or another. Huh. Anyway. I mean, I wouldn't have been sad to see it. They're both very attractive people. I'm yeah. Sure, I'm sure they looked great. Oh, and you know, just like in a, like half of his movies, his ass is in this movie several times. Right? I mean, <laughs> he's in little he's in little tiny briefs a lot, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> I mean, if he just wanted to wear that all the time, that'd be, I'd be all right. He wouldn't mind at all. Dennis Quaid is in his 70s now and He's still super. He like, still so looks good. <laughs> He's still boneable. <laughs> oh my god, totally. And and he only he recently within the last couple of years got remarried. He's been married several times. He was married to Meg Ryan for quite a long time, and oh, that's um, right. their marriage ended, I think, because um, she had an affair with Russell Crowe, which was unfortunate because they were such a cute couple. I just loved them. Mm. But he's, I think, been married a couple of times since then. I think I could be wrong. I didn't look this up, but I do know that within the past couple of years he remarried a much younger very beautiful woman and from everything i've seen they're very happy so good for him <laughs> and good for him for still being hot in his 70s <laughs> this is this is becoming our dennis quaid tribute episode apparently <laughs> <laughs> listen uh christopher Plummer was hot too i you know yeah i don't, I don't a good looking guy i, I don't think of him in that way <laughs> he's more of like a fatherly kind of figure mm. in my mind but that's a I different see how other people could get down with christopher <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of fantasy maybe <laughs> oh man okay so this it comes down to the final showdown where alex and jane are aware of what's going on they make novatsky aware of it Nov- uh max von Sydow and christopher Plummer have a scene together where novatsky's like I'll never let you get away with this. And Blair's like, um, okay, bye. <laughs> My men are waiting in the hall to shoot you. And they do. And he's dead and gets thrown in the trunk of a car. The plan is they've got the president there for this sleep treatment or sleep whatever over. it is. <laughs> and Blair, Christopher Plummer, goes out of his way to make sure that the president is in this particular room. And as it turns out, it's because he's going to have Tommy in the adjoining room and he's going to have Tommy go into his dream and assassinate him. But Alex and Jane are on to them. And Jane's office, conveniently, is immediately below the Mm. room that the president is sleeping in. So Alex goes in too. And Alex actually gets there first. And he gets there, and it's the the dream that we've seen. It's on a train now, but it's still, you know, just this train going through this post-apocalyptic hellscape. Alex tells the president, 
this is who I am. This is why I'm here. They're sending somebody in here to kill you and they can do it. And it's Blair and he's against you. And the president's like, what? Okay. (laughs) 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 Not the sharpest knife in the drawer of this president, but you know, (laughs) whatever. But then Tommy shows up. And I have to give David Patrick Kelly, who plays Tommy, credit. He's great in this scene. Mm. He is very intimidating and frightening. And what's most frightening about him is that because he's been doing this for longer than Alex, he's a pro at it. We failed to mention that we had seen that he had killed somebody in a dream previously. We didn't actually witness it happen. We saw it happen from the outside, but Alex put two and two together that he had killed this woman in her sleep. Also, Alex had broken into the doctor's office and pulled out the file on Tommy, and it turned out that there's a classic newspaper clipping that's self-proclaimed psychic murders father I mean, with a photograph of the dead father with bullet holes all throughout his body yeah I, i'm glad you remember because that is it's very significant um in this last scene but this last scene you know it, it, it's all a dream and tommy has realized from his experience that he can do anything in a dream, you know, it's all subconscious. So mm-hmm. he can do whatever he wants. He can be whatever he wants. He can, if he wants to be a ninja and uses nunchucks in the subway, he can. And <laughs> and, and it's great. It's a great scene. Yeah. Um, I, I actually read that, that nunchucks scene, which I think is really fun. And actually, David Patrick Kelly studied martial arts. So he was showing off some of his own skills. It had to be cut in the UK because they had like a ban on nunchucks. Nunchucks? Like, what? Like... what? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate, because he was really good with the nunchucks. Am I wrong in this? Weren't his nunchucks also sort of like kind of Star Warsy lightsabery as well? Yeah. <laughs> They're kind yeah, of green glowing. Maybe. I don't know. It was fun. But it, like, it's a whole big chase. Like, he's chasing them through different places, different scenes. And because it's a dream, they can go through a door in a train car and then end up in the subway and then open up another door and end up in some underground lair. Like, Which is cool. And, and it is all very surreal. And it feels very much like the end of a Nightmare on Elm Street movie where they typically end up in some sort of Freddy hellscape. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. That, that's what it felt very much like. And also, this contains the one scene that I remember more than anything else about this movie that I just completely connected to. And that's when he, there's like a, a policeman who comes in in the, in the dreams, like, hey, what's going on here? And uh, Tommy grabs him and displays his fingers, which are now has have blades on the top of each of his yeah. fingers, plunges it into this guy's chest and pulls out a still beating heart. Mm-hmm. Now... We've already been talking about Nightmare on Elm Street came out this year for the first time. That's like an obvious type Freddy type thing. What a coincidence, right? And then the second thing, also this year, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And what happens right in front of Cape Capshaw in that movie, too, is a dude gets his heart taken out. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy. These these connections right in this movie that really genuinely seem to be coincidence. Right. It's it's wild. 
it's a big showdown and it's fun, you know, and there are like hell dogs and all <laughs> kinds of crazy things going on there in this big underground place, fire, you know, it's, it's mostly reds, you know, in the color scheme and the, it, Alex is trying to get the president away, but eventually they come to a dead end. Tommy catches up with them. Tommy and Alex fight a little bit, but then Tommy says, I know what you're really afraid of. And he turns into the snake man. Mm-hmm. And they fight a little more, and he throws Alex away. He throws him off to the side, and Alex is kind of injured. And and then Tommy starts to go for the president. Behind Tommy's back, Alex stands up, and it's like... Not that he realizes that he can be whatever he wants, but he's just never done it before, so it takes him a second to kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. But he transforms himself into the image of Tommy's dead father, complete with bullet holes and everything. And he starts talking to Tommy, and Tommy is obviously affected and moved. You know, Mm -hmm. he's like, Daddy... If he weren't such a psychopath bad guy, you'd feel a little bad for him. Yeah. But he is, so you don't. (laughs) And the president stabs him from behind. Everybody wakes up. Well, not everybody. Uh, Tommy doesn't. He's dead. Uh, Blair watches him convulse and die in his bed. But everybody else wakes up, and the president comes out to be greeted by Blair, and the president's basically like, I know what you did, and Blair's like, okay, well, good luck Proving convincing that. anybody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're just going to say you're crazy, so whatever. Um, and it seems like, you know, what are they going to do? And Alex is trying to run away because people are still after him, and he runs into the president, and the president thanks him and offers him protection or whatnot. But Alex is talking to Jane, and he's like, you know, I have to take care of this. So the next thing we see is Blair walking in what appears to be a government building. I don't know, some fancy building. He's walking down this big hall. He comes to an elevator. He pushes the button, and the elevator opens, and it's Alex just standing there. And, you know, I I guess it depends on where your mind is at the time. But really, at this point, I wasn't sure what Mm. was going on. As it turns out, Alex has entered Blair's dream, and he kills him. (laughs) Yeah, he pulls his head apart, and there's a snake monster whatever in there, and leaps at him, and then I think the next thing is, like, everything's fine. Um, The girl and the boy are in the train, and they're starting to leave, and at this point, the ticket guy comes into their carriage room, and it's the same ticket guy that was in that sexy dream that he had Uh entered, and uh, they kind of look at each other, and then go off into the sunset. So is this supposed to be like an implication that maybe that was a little bit of a dream too? I don't know. That always kind of blew my mind as a kid. Like, mm. because they they look at each other like, what? Mm. Like, <laughs> wasn't that the same guy from the dream? And then there's like, ah, whatever. And they start making out. And, you know, then the, the camera pans out and it pans out on the train as it's going away. And the, yeah. the score is very pretty and it's romantic and exciting. And it's ambiguous. It is. I like I liked the ambiguity of it. Maybe it is a dream. I mean, especially now that Alex knows that he can control the dreams, why not just go Heck on yeah. sexy train rides every day? <laughs> <laughs> Sexual dream tourism. Yeah, that would be it would be Well, this just I'd be down. It tapped if I had a coupon or something. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> But it seems like you'd prefer Dennis Quaid 
uh, to be the <laughs> oh, one taking totally. care of this. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, it reminded me a little bit of the end of uh, the final scene in Total Recall. You know, it also plays with your mind a little bit like yeah. that. You know, it's right. very similarly. Although this one in, in a less profound, but just kind of cute way, I think. Yeah. Like we said, I, I thought the movie was fun. And, you know, it was dated for sure in many ways. It's a little silly and over the top in some of these other ways. Mm-hmm. But ultimately would be a great movie to be remade. And I'm still kind of surprised that most people don't really remember this film. I mean, in the internet age, everybody eventually remembers all this obscure mm-hmm. stuff. But up until recently, nobody was talking about this again. You know, I, we grew up with it, watching it a ton on VHS, but uh, I never really met anybody else who had. And on cable. It played on cable a lot, I think. Oh, did it? Yeah, we didn't have it on VHS, but I remember watching it a bunch of times. And, and so I think that it played like on USA or some mm. of those other cable channels. So it had a bit of a life. It did, but you're you're right. It's a, it, I just don't see people talking about it very often anywhere. I like it. It's a fun movie. It's entertaining. Yeah. Uh, it's it's fast paced. It's it's action heavy. It, it's well acted for what it is. I mean, it's not you know a serious movie, but everybody in the movie is very competent. You've got some very very prestigious actors in here. It is surprising that it's not better known. Yeah. Um, I don't know if movies that came after it were directly inspired by it. Like like you said, there were other movies that were tackling similar things like going into dreams and stuff but i read you know like a list of several movies that came after it that seem to have been inspired by one of the ones that stood out to me the only one that i can remember is the cell which is another movie that i think that people don't talk about very much it was a uh, jennifer lopez was in that movie Mm mm-hmm we need to do that movie because it's kind of over it's kind of overlooked and I really liked it. Like I thought it was really good. And it was about the same premise as this movie. Yeah. Going into people's dreams, you know, for therapeutic purposes. But anyway, all I'm saying is it does seem to have had some lasting influence. I can't say for certain that, you know, there's a direct tie, but people who made those movies that came out later, I I can only imagine, like us, were probably around our age, were at least familiar with this movie, and and maybe there was some influence there. Overall, I would recommend it. You know, it's PG-13. It was only the second PG-13 movie ever, um, once that was uh, established as a rating. And it's got a lot to offer. Yes, there are the horror elements, and I think the horror elements are scary, but it's also got... You know, like we said, political thriller going stuff going on, action stuff going on, comedy, romance. There's there's really a little bit of everything, and I think that a lot of people could get on board with this, even if they're not typically mainstream horror fans. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It was critically well-reviewed. It was a box office success. You know, it made $12 million against a $6 million budget. It still has a 77% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and Roger Ebert liked it. <laughs> so um you know i think this is probably wise because it just spans some genres and does it so well anyway all right so coming back to christopher Plummer, of course we reviewed this movie because we wanted to pay tribute to him this is one of the few horror movies that he was in and he's good in it he's great he, he's, he's great. got a small role but he's good in it he has such a commanding presence I believe him a hundred percent as this villainous powerful 
character. I, I mean, he's he's great. And you know, I'm not going to pretend to be like a like a big you know Christopher Plummer stan or anything. You know, I I like the sound of music. It's fine. <laughs> I like him in that. I loved him in Knives Out. I thought he was a lot of fun in that. I've seen him in other things. He's a solid actor yeah. a solid performer uh, i've never seen him in anything where i thought oh man that sucked no no i mean he's he's good he's a craftsman yeah and uh i'm glad that we are able to pay tribute to him all right well thank you so much for listening to another episode if you enjoyed it please share it with a friend you can search for us online just look up two guys in a chainsaw podcast and find our website our facebook page our youtube channel uh, subscribe to us there and send us a message let us know what you thought of this episode and this movie and let us know what you would like us to review in the future. Until then, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Chainsaw.